The reading of the Scriptures from Jude, reading verses 8 to 10. So let us hear the Word of God. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Uh, All of us are acquainted with the reality that uh, we uh, go through great change in life. Uh, Seemingly it's constant. Uh, But we need to be reminded that when it comes to the truth of the Scripture, the Gospel, uh, the Word of God, there is no change. Uh, Truth is immutable. Uh, It comes to us in divine perfection. Uh, And yet the Libertines are doing what? They are changing the Gospel. Uh, If you look at verse 4, we see the change uh, in the phrase, who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. So they're turning the truth. They're spinning the truth. Uh, it's change. Well, again, you can't change perfection, but they're changing uh, immutable truth. And then uh, there is something else, uh, verse, uh, verse 4, and they deny only Master, uh, uh, Lord Jesus Christ. So great change has come into uh, Jude's churches. And it's not just changing the truth of the gospel, it's what follows the change. Uh, And generally, any time you corrupt the gospel, what follows is always immorality. Uh, And that essentially is our our text this morning. Uh, The previous context was uh, terminal judgments upon the first generation out of Egypt. It's really a staggering lesson, isn't it? The entire generation, save two men, that were lost because they did not believe God. Uh, The evil angels, all of them consigned uh, uh, to the eternal destiny of ruin, punishment. Uh, And then the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, Uh, What an incredible example for our own culture today. Uh, Those cities, terminal judgments. Uh, We are uh, long in denying that there are terminal judgments to anything, except when you read the Bible, the Word of God, immutable truth. Uh, So it is instructive that uh, what follows uh, changing the Gospel is, of course, ruin, Uh, And Jude now makes application to his adversaries. And he begins in the application by describing them. Uh, Let's look at the description. Uh, uh, The first is that the Libertines uh, reject uh, authority. Uh, Now, uh, most of you have been Christians for a number of years. I I doubt you've ever gone to a church and... uh, heard words like, I am going to deny biblical authority today. That's not the way it happens. What happens is, is they simply modernize it. 
Uh, they might use something like the society in Paul's day was totally different than our day. And so we take a social view of the gospel in terms of uh, how we construct it today. And the societies are totally different, and therefore the gospel is totally different. So they're changing the gospel. They're not overtly denying it, but in fact they are. Uh, they obviously try to modernize it. Well, how do you modernize truth? Uh, it's like someone saying, I'm going to make the truth relevant today. You don't make the truth relevant. It is relevant by virtue of what it is. But uh, they use words in that vein, or they simply redefine it, uh, or add or subtract to it. So Jude begins uh, with a look at their uh, rejection of authority by establishing the means they use to establish their own authority. Uh, notice the text. Uh, yet in the same manner these men also by dreaming. So there's dreamers. Uh, dreamers in the sense that in the Old Testament economy, uh, sometimes God imparted revelation through dreams. And so that's what they're laying claim to here. They have dreams and they make their dreams authoritative. Uh, and of course, in that regard, they're adding or subtracting from immutable truth. Uh, I, I don't know that I've ever heard uh, someone say something to the effect that I had a revelation from God in my dream. Uh, it may occur, perhaps you've heard it, I simply have not. But what I hear more often than not is uh, people use words like feelings. I feel that this is right. Now it might not be right according to Scripture, but their feelings, of course, supplant uh, the immutable truth of the Word of God. Uh, and, of course, their feelings become authoritative, and they act based upon their feelings. That's the way, of course, to perpetual ruin. Uh, we have our constituted authority in Holy Scripture, the Word of God, the Bible, the immutable truth. We don't add to it or subtract to it. We do not make it subordinate to our feelings. I understand feelings. We have powerful emotions but our feelings are not authoritative, the Word of God is. Uh, they dream and perhaps have visions as their source of authority, and in that sense, they vacate God for themselves. It's a beautiful picture of this in the prophet Jeremiah. If you have your Old Testament, uh, turn to Jeremiah chapter 23, uh, in verse 25, because that's exactly what they were doing in the days of the great prophet Jeremiah. We read in verse 25 of Jeremiah chapter 23, I've heard what the prophets have said, who prophesy falsely in my name, saying, I had a dream. I had a dream. In other words, they're coming up with their own authority. It's not from God. Uh, they establish it uh, based upon their feelings or what occurred to them in the evening hours. But notice the, the tragedy of verse 36, for you will no longer remember the oracle of the Lord, because every man's word will become the oracle, and you have perverted the words of the living God, the Lord of hosts, our God. So they supplant God's authority in his own divine revelation for their own. Whether it's feelings uh, or uh, whatever uh, the case might be. Uh, I would simply remind you, uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 1, verse 2, that in previous uh, ages, God spoke to us by the prophets. 
but in these last days he has spoken to us in his son. Uh, a reminder that, uh, of the importance of the words of uh, our Savior because of the dangers of the last days. Uh, Jude exposes these uh, men, these false teachers as false, in three descriptions. Uh, the first is uh, they, uh, they defile uh, the flesh. Uh, defined, I think, contextually in verse 7, they indulged in gross immorality. In our culture, that's relative, isn't it? Uh, what's gross immorality for one may be righteous uh, conduct in one following their own way, establishing their own path. But of course, Jude is establishing it in light of the practices of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and their gross immorality, uh, defiling the flesh. Uh, the verb has the nuance of moral impurity or cultic uh, disqualification because of, uh, of, uh, of uncleanness, and therefore they cannot enter the presence of God. Uh, in our culture, we simply redefine that and make our own way. And when biblical authority is ignored, uh, immorality always follows. Always follows. The two go together. Uh, reminded of this uh, incredible saga in the Roman Catholic Church that seemingly raises its head continually. Uh, descriptive phrase, a lavender mafia. I'll leave it to your own understanding of what lavender means. But the immorality is incredible. And uh, bishops protect their own, promote their own. Now, I understand some people deny there's a mafia at all, but I'm not so sure. The numbers are staggering. But it's what happens when you reject biblical authority, you assert your own immorality soon comes in. They just simply go together. And it's not just Roman Catholic Church. It occurs anywhere. Men dream and establish their own revelation uh, in contrast to the revealed will of God in Holy Scripture. Antinomianism has always been a constituent threat to the life of the church. And I remind you, in the ministry of John Calvin, he faced the antinomians. They wanted access to the Lord's table. He refused it to them. And they became enraged. They threatened his life. Abusive threats. Uh, we speak today of fencing the table of the Lord. Calvin became the fence and would not give them access to the Lord's table because it would have perverted the sacrament. The courage of Calvin uh, standing up against uh, the uh, perversions of the antinomians in his own day. I remind you that there are uh, three texts in the book of the Revelation uh, that speaks to the morality of the true people of God. Uh, let's just simply turn to a couple of them. Revelation chapter 3, uh, in verses 4 and 5. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. 
Revelation chapter 6 and verse 11, uh, John is speaking of the church before the throne of God in heaven. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 11, And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told to rest a little while longer. Uh, White speaking to uh, the nuance of uh, their public behavior and being faithful to God uh, and rejecting, if you will, the theology of the libertines uh, that embrace anything goes. Uh, Of course, perhaps the most uh, pointed Reminder is uh, Revelation chapter 19 and verse 8. Uh, the bride of the Lamb, the church, uh, comes to the great celebration of uh, the marriage. And it was given to her. Notice, given to her. God in His grace gives uh, to His people. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. That the revelation of God, the truth of the Word of God, uh, comes within our hearts and changes us. Uh, That's what truth does. Uh, The libertines take the opposite. They deny the authority of the truth of the Word of God and what follows is immorality. And they will be rejected uh, in eternity. Secondly, uh, an explicit uh, reference that they reject authority. Now again, it's never explicitly stated. They just simply ignore it. Suppress it. Conveniently overlook it. The clothing of the bride of the Lamb, the righteous acts of the saints. They want the clothing, but deny the righteous acts of the saints. What follows their theology is immorality, gross immorality. There's an interesting illustration of this in uh, the ongoing life of the American church that, uh, like so many things, uh, comes in cycle. It's called the Lordship Salvation Controversy. Uh, Simply stated, uh, uh, we can say something to the effect that I accept Christ as my Savior and be saved eternally and yet live my life however I want and still be saved, of course. In our own uh, Warfield lecture series, we had a lecture simply on that topic. Uh, That uh, you become a Christian, uh, profess faith in Jesus Christ, it never impacts your behavior, and yet you are still a Christian. That Christ is my Savior, but He's not my Lord and Master. Notice again verse 4, and deny our only Master and Lord. Uh, The word master is that from which we have our English word despot. Not that Christ is a despot, but He is our sovereign Lord. And He gives to us His word, and He also gives us the Spirit to enable us to obey it. Uh, Because He is our master, and a good one at that. And better to have Him as a master uh, than Satan, and to live with His fallen angels eternally separated Uh, from a benevolent and gracious Savior. It's an explicit denial that Christ is Lord and Master and that His dominion engages all of life. I understand 
that all of life means it occurs over the entirety of one's life, uh, whether it's short or long, but nevertheless, the truth affects change. Uh, the previous uh, description uh, is that uh, they denied the effect of moral law. By rejecting authority, these men deny Christ as King and the Spirit who sanctifies us in His service. Denying lordship, of course, promotes insubordination. And that's really what they're after. We have a Savior, but we are insubordinate. We reject the totality of His authority over our lives. And what follows such rejection is always insubordination. Uh, in terms of our context here, uh, immorality is soon to follow. Reminded uh, continually of what, uh, what is obvious uh, in our own entertainment culture, in particular sports. Uh, imagine uh, watching the Super Bowl or any sports event for that matter, uh, absent the referees. Uh, imagine telling uh, the captains of the team, make your own rules as you go along. Well, what would result? Well, chaos. You caught the ball out of bounds. No, I didn't. I was inbound. No, you weren't. Yes, you were. Well, that's what's occurring in many cases in the life of the church when you reject authority. You make your own rules. In our culture, more often than not, it's feelings. We feel that something is right or wrong. And if we feel there's something okay, we validate our own uh, divine authority while rejecting the authority of the Lord God of heaven. Uh, we use rules throughout our lives. So does God. And chief rule is that His truth invades our hearts and change changes us. Uh, the libertines uh, reject that, and what follows, of course, is immorality. Thirdly, they blaspheme glories. New American Standard reads angelic majesties. Second uh, Peter uh, chapter 2 and verse 10 is something of a commentary on what it means to revile angelic majesties, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority, daring self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. It's important because oftentimes angels have a very close association with God Himself. Remember when the prophet Isaiah is called uh, into the presence of God, uh, the angels were crying out the holiness of the greatness of God. Uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, Jesus comes with the glory of His Father and angels are with Him, surrounded by angels. Uh, Revelation chapter 1, 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. And he sent and communicated it by angels to his bondservant, John. The communication of revelation 
by the angelic host that speak to the authority of God because they are divine messengers. The Libertines therefore revile and oppose the angelic host who serve God in glory. And of course, to oppose one is to oppose the other. It's an implicit reminder that their conduct is inglorious because they are in opposition to heaven. Much of the church today, we pick and choose what we want to believe, what we feel like believing, what validates our own inner worth, or whatever that means. It's an implicit, if not explicit, denial of divine authority in Scripture delivered by the angelic host. So three descriptions. And now Jude is going to give us a historic illustration, a picture of, uh, of this, if you will, in a historic example. Uh, verse 9. He illustrates, Jude does the reality in an example of the archangel Michael, uh, alluding, I think, to an obscure text and either the assumption of Moses or the testament of Moses of which no extant manuscripts exist. Uh, these were lost apocryphal books uh, which had no place in the biblical canon, but Jude validates that this event indeed was a true event. Uh, they reference an encounter between Michael and the devil. Uh, Michael is a divine agent and a guardian of the people of God. I'm always reminded uh, in my own personal faith, uh, sometimes I give short shrift to the angelic host, but we should not because they protect us. They watch over us. Uh, if you turn, for example, in the case of Michael, of the great archangel, uh, book of Daniel, uh, Daniel uh, chapter 10, great battles, great threats, great forces attacking the people of God. Uh, Daniel chapter 10, verse 21. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth, yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. He had one ally, an ally that came from the throne of God, Michael, the great archangel, because many were not standing firmly for the truth. Uh, great reminder. I oftentimes wonder if in heaven we will learn in our own personal lives, how oftentimes angels intervened to protect us, to guard us from error and unprincipled men. Be a great story to hear, to be sure. So Michael is an agent with derived authority. He has no authority in and of himself. And upon the death of Moses, Michael disputed and argued about the body of Moses with the devil. Not sure exactly what happened here, but perhaps the devil accuses Moses of spiritual failure and therefore opposes his worthiness to an honorable burial. But nonetheless, the two are disputing. The biblical account, of course, is Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 5 and 6. Moses dies and he's buried. But the key is that Michael will not judge the devil. 
He appeals simply to ultimate authority. Uh, Notice the text. But said, the Lord rebuke you. He's relying on the derived authority of heaven itself. It's a historic illustration that there is divine authority. And Michael the great archangel relies upon that authority to rebuke the devil. He has nothing innately in and of itself. It's derived from God, the throne of glory. Illustration of this is they're not in our commitment to sola scriptura. Scripture alone. It's not just that Scripture is the only authority in the life of the church. For example, there's constituted authority in elders. They have authority. But it's the reality that our only ultimate authority is Scripture. We appeal to Scripture as the final, ultimate authority of all of life regardless of his venue. And the point of the illustration is to highlight the negative reality that the antinomians reject the divine and all of his agents. That they become an authority in and of themselves and exalt the same over the Word of God and all of his agents. It's a danger they pose to the church. Now, once again, I've never heard anyone stand in a pulpit and say, I reject divine authority. It's much more sinister than that. They simply ignore it, redefine it, try to make it relevant for this day, whatever that means. And as I suggested earlier, the truth is always relevant. It's another very beautiful historic parallel. Uh, to this battle between Michael and and Satan over the body of Moses and the prophet uh, Zechariah. Turn with me, if you would, to Zechariah chapter 3. The context is Joshua the high priest standing before God and Satan is accusing him. So the context is uh, somewhat parallel. And uh, Joshua the high priest priest is clothed in filthy garments. Let's read uh, the first several verses. Uh, Zechariah chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. You could put yourself in that sentence, couldn't you? Because that's what Satan does. He's the great accuser. He knows the things that you have done. He accuses you before uh, the God of heaven all of the time. Verse 2, And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? What a great reminder. God plucks us from the fire by His grace. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. And he spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. And again he said to him, See, I've taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. And then I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments 
while the angel of the Lord was standing by. What a great picture of our own lives. We were clothed in filthy garments, and God simply took the garments away and gave us righteous garments based upon the righteous acts of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That God negates the accusations by providing the required remedy. It's a beautiful illustration of the gospel if you're not a Christian. You are not properly clothed to stand before the Lord of glory in His eternal majesty and holiness. Something must happen. What happens is Christ provisions His people. Come to Christ and He will reclothe you in the righteous acts of the saints so that you are made acceptable to stand in the presence of the glory of the almighty holy God. Once your garments are filthy, polluted, corrupted, and God makes a provision in the righteous acts of the saints in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Great picture of the Gospel and God providing for Joshua the high priest. And Satan has no recourse, for the Lord is sovereign, rejects the accusations because of Christ. Put yourself in that picture. Like me, the accusations are all accurate. Except God has made a provision in the work of His Son, Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty that we might be reclothed in the righteous acts of the saints and given to us garments that are white and pure and shining. And Satan again has no authority in his accusations and God does as He will to provide for those whom He wills to provide for and none can question and the accusations of Satan are rejected because of Christ. So again, it's a picture of, uh, picture of uh, what it means uh, uh, when Michael, the great archangel, relies upon the authority of God. It's a picture for us of what it means to rely upon the authority of Scripture, the ultimate authority of Scripture as the Word of God. Uh, knowing in the great hope that uh, God has uh, reconstituted uh, our clothing uh, so that we can stand before Him in white and clean garments. And by the authority of the God of heaven, uh, the accusations of Satan are rejected. Uh, historical example of one relying upon ultimate authority, the authority which the antinomians and the libertines reject while we affirm. And again, they reject it by ignoring, uh, refuting based upon the sociology of our day and the social construct in which we live. But say what you will, it's all an explicit rejection of divine authority. 
And again, as I've suggested, uh, what, what follows that rejection uh, is uh, immorality because rejecting divine authority is always followed by immorality in the life of the church. One of the things we struggle with uh, uh, in this great debate that's always occurring is what about virtue? Well, can't we forgive these guys? Can't we be tolerant? Uh, toleration is certainly a part of Christian virtue. Can we just agree to disagree? Uh, and so sometimes our virtue is thrown at us. But I would simply respond by saying, you cannot separate truth and virtue. And the moment you deny truth, virtue is thrown away. Truth is immutable. What follows truth is virtue. I once uh, read of an illustration that uh, comes from the music world. For example, you play the piano, you hit a middle C. Isn't it interesting that today a middle C in 2021 sounds the same as a middle C in the 18th century? Or for that matter, the 17th century. A middle C is truth. It never changes. And what follows truth is the beauty of the sound. And it is the same in Scripture. You cannot separate virtue and truth. And the moment you reject the truth because it is authoritative, what will follow is something much less than virtue. Beautiful illustration of this in the words of the Apostle Paul. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, in the 13th verse. And for this reason... We also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. Now notice what follows the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. What follows the truth is the work of God changing our lives. So what's the danger of these men in rejecting biblical authority constituted by God in the truth of Scripture? Well, as I've suggested, immorality, and that's what we have in the final verse of our study this morning, uh, verse 10. He repairs to their fallenness because they're ignorant of what they're doing. We might say that they're clueless about the way that God works. Reminded of this in our own culture, that... Uh, uh, different venues, like the venue of biology. Uh, this great argument is occurring in our culture over gender. I don't really like that term because that's a grammatical term. But nonetheless, we'll use it because our culture uses it. As if people can define their own gender. I think chromosomes do that. You either have them or you don't. And they define you. You can reject it all you want to your own harm, which is what will happen eventually. People doing great harm to themselves because they supplant their feelings over 
and above biological truth. I read a tragic story about just this that shows how incipiently dangerous it is in the Wall Street Journal. Very progressive mothers. Acceptance of all types of lifestyle. Tolerant of everything. Until, until their own children come to them and want to go through various forms of therapy and change their own biological identity. Then they take a stand. But by then it's way too late. Once you open the door to relativity and acceptance of all types of lifestyle, then eventually it comes to haunt you in a terribly tragic way when your own children want to come and engage in acts of perversion. That just simply the libertine lifestyle that's so prevalent in our culture, in denial of science, in the case of the church, in denial of the very words of the God who is true. Jude describes them as animals. We oftentimes use animal metaphors to speak about people's morality or the lack thereof. That's what Jude is doing in his final verse. The point of the simile is that animals do not engage in logic and reason. They engage simply in instinct. And the instinct of people today is perverted when they reject the divine authority of the Word of God. These false teachers follow base desires. They make their own rules. And by these things, they're corrupted. Again, another commentary on this text from a parallel verse, 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 14. Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. It's a reminder that behavior and conduct matter because they are expressions of our theology and the life-changing reality of the Gospel. The truth of the Word of God that changes lives. But when you abandon truth, it's more than just error that fills the void. It's all matter of vileness that comes in to follow it, which it always does. That lawlessness and immorality go together. I would simply remind you that at Grace Bible Church, we affirm biblical orthodoxy, verse 3. We earnestly contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We do not add to it. We do not supplant it. We do not subtract from it. We earnestly contend for it to pass the truth to successive generations. And we warn people of the dangers of men who reject it. Verse 4. Men who turn the grace of our God to licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord. We affirm authority. We promote virtuous living because they go together. The gospel and virtue go together. The truth of the word of God and virtue go together. You deny the one, what you will get is the opposite of the other. And that's what the libertines are promoting in the life of the church. Not just in our culture at large, but in the church at large. Now, may we do otherwise and affirm the reality of the biblical gospel and the life-changing power of the Word of God affecting virtuous living for the glory of our Savior, 
with the ultimate reminder that we will be clothed in the righteous acts of the saints, accepted totally and eternally in the presence of our great and holy God.